Hi everyone, I'm Jacob, New Narrative's Editor-in-Chief. On the 1st of February this year, Senior General Min Aung Lang launched a coup in Myanmar, aborting the country's five-year experiment with electoral democracy. The army toppled the civilian government the day before a newly elected parliament was set to take office. State Councillor Aung San Suu Kyi and hundreds of her allies were arrested. Since then, numerous informal online fundraisers have materialized to support the civil disobedience movement, whose primary tactic is to encourage civil servants to walk off their jobs until a stalled economy and an inability to govern force the generals to step down. New Narrative recently published a journalism piece on this, so please visit our website to check that out. On today's episode, I speak to 23-year-old Hain Aung about how the coup has affected him personally, his role in the anti-coup movement, and what those listening in can do to help. If you enjoy what we're doing, please support our work by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com join. Memberships start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's $1 a week. Or you can donate at newnarrative.com donate. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. And now here's the interview. Hi, Hain. Thank you for coming on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, nothing too special this morning. <laughs> oh, something worse happened, but yeah. Yeah, do you want to tell us what happened to you this morning? Definitely. Uh, so this morning around 9.30, I think, or 9 a.m., I'm not exactly sure, um, a few soldiers came and they raided uh, two houses in my neighborhood, uh, specifically on my street, um, because the two families, they were politically involved, first of all, and second, they were of, uh, they were of, they were Muslim. I think I believe this is Ramadan, so I think they wanted to prove a point that we can do whatever we want to you during this month. So I think they came to arrest them on purpose to also send a message to our street because our street is quite political. Adding more on that, they uh, also arrested. They took away the father from one of the houses, and then they also took away uh, the grandfather from the other house. Uh, the grandfather is actually known to be political, even in 1988. So I think he has a history of um, being in revolutions. But at this point, I feel like the military is just arresting um, individuals that they think could be a leader when they don't realize that this is a leaderless movement. Right. I want to ask you more about what you've been seeing on the ground. But before that, let me just ask you to tell us a bit about yourself and what do you do? Oh, okay. Perfect. Um, my name's Hain Aung uh, I graduated from university two years ago with a degree in international relations and development studies. I'm really happy with my degree. Uh, I was working in a school for ethnic minorities until like September, October last year. And then I'm currently working part-time as like with juveniles in the juvenile detention center. So I'm currently also looking for a full-time job. So there's that. But uh, so that's basically my short bio. Okay, great. And you've already told us a bit about the raid you you witnessed this morning. Can you also just paint a picture for us about what's happening on the ground right now? What has it been like these past couple months since the coup? So since the coup started, first, um, when the first week it started, it wasn't actually quite violent. Actually, the first three weeks that since the coup started wasn't that violent at all. They were, uh, everyone was protesting. Uh, on the people started protesting on the sixth day, so they started arresting since the start. But it wasn't; they were not using guns, they were not using tear gas and things like that. So 
it was safe to protest. And after three weeks, and that's when they started with the killings. And my neighborhood, personally speaking, my neighborhood has a lot of working class people. And judging from my experience, they tend to be out in the front more and they tend to protest more. So my neighborhood has been active politically since the start. They have been protesting at night. They have been putting uh, banners, doing everything that is possible to help the, win the revolution. But because my neighborhood has been quite active, the police and soldiers also usually come. Um, since they started being violent, I have always heard gunshots almost like four or five days a week. And um, they usually shoot up the sky to basically scare us. And they also take away... Uh, they also come around the neighborhood and they would shout uh, from a loudspeaker how they're doing the soldiers, how they're doing this for security reasons and how, what well, which is bullshit, um, and how they are trying to protect the neighborhood. And my neighborhood always finds a way to continue protesting despite the violence perpetrated by the soldiers. So I'm really proud of them for that. Um, the other day, I heard a grenade. Um, so, like, I never heard a grenade before, so I cannot tell you whether it was far or close. So I all I know that was that it was very loud. So that was pretty scary. Um, another thing is that um, I think they use, my dad told me it's a G3 gun, and they would shoot up the sky. And that gunshot is so loud that, like, many neighborhoods can hear it. My grandma thought that they shot up, her, they shot her house because it was so loud and I was like that's pretty that's pretty fucking scary to be completely honest so yeah um, overall that's my experience with the police and soldiers here but um, oh one time they came around and they looted their nearest liquor store and they started drinking up all the alcohol and actually they stole motorbikes and they went around the neighborhood being so drunk and shouting things and it was like 1 a.m. and truly it was disturbing for me to experience that but overall that's all I have experienced so far um yeah that sounds terrifying um since Myanmar's army toppled the civilian government uh in February the assistance association for political prisoners says that more than 700 people have been killed by security forces and more than 3,000 have been detained can you tell us how this coup has affected you and people you know? Uh, actually, um, you know, I told you, Jacob, earlier that I used to work in a school for ethnic minorities. And um, one of the students was actually a victim. He got shot um, in Lasho, I think two or three weeks ago, because he was out in the streets every day protesting. And on Tamadode, which is on Forest Day, on 27th of March, um, they shot him with a sniper from a building and he sadly passed away. So he was actually one of the 700 victims of um, the military uh, brutality. And another person that I used to work with, but this is from my first year of university, so like around five years ago, I was actually detained for three weeks in Mandalay as well, but she got released. So I'm really happy for her. Um, so I have another friend who is working as a model. Um, by, the, by, by model, I mean like photo shoots and all. Um, so she was working as a model and she's been political political on Facebook all day. And now they have 
uh, announced on Miaudi, which is a state-owned uh, television channel, that she's on the arrest list. So now she's currently in Italy, so she's safe. But it's at the same time, it's quite scary that they are arresting people, murdering people as they want without a second thought. And like, it's horrible because I also know someone who was a victim and who was shot by the military, uh, military soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and I'm so sorry for your loss. Do you, do you ever fear that something like that could happen to you? Well, yes, because uh, I'm also currently like being political on our social media platforms and I'm continuing to go protest. But that's the risk I have to take because I think that living under this military dictatorship is genuinely worse than dying. So I just cannot like, obviously I'll try not to die and I'll try to escape arrest as well as much as I can. But at the same time, like it's just a risk that I'm willing to take, which is not the risk that my parents are willing to take because they have forced me to not be political on social media or continue protesting because they're worried that I might like be arrested or shot, <laughs> which is understandable because they're parents. But yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, in what way have you been political? Well, when the protest happened, when the coup started, well, the first six days were silent, but from the sixth day, the first fifth, five days were silent, actually. But on the sixth day, people started protesting. So I continued going along with the protest and I uh, was on the streets almost every day trying to basically voice, um, make my voice hurt. Um, but after two or three or four weeks, I started realizing that I, I'm not able to go to the streets every day. First of all, because it's extremely violent now and they are shooting people randomly. So I, you know, I also want to be safe. But I will still continue to go protest on the streets, but not just every day. Um, so I decided to start a fundraiser with my friend. And when I started the fundraiser, um, I didn't expect it to be very successful, which is quite successful now. So I'm really glad. But um, a lot of civil servants currently are on strike. They're not working. So what they're doing right now is they have stated that they're not going to return to work until the civilian government come back. And by civil servants, I mean from doctors, nurses, to janitors, truck drivers for the city development committee. So basically almost everyone around, I think 50 to 75% are on strike at the moment. So what I'm doing is that I'm trying to substitute their income or substitute their salary to make sure that they can continue going on strike. So that's basically my contribution. But other than that, I also try to spread awareness on Instagram, which is my main, plat main platform that I use um, about news and everything. But recently, I've been a bit slow with that because it's overwhelming. But yeah. Right. So the opposition to the Tatmadaw or uh, Myanmar's armed forces, they call themselves the Civil Disobedience Movement or CDM. So for those listening outside of Myanmar, can you give us a breakdown on the CDM? Who are they and how do they intend to restore democracy to Myanmar? So um, the civil disobedience movement, it actually started when the who started as well. Um, they It was on social media saying civil disobedience, civil disobedience movement. And when it started, it didn't really had a lot of details in it. And it was just hitting pots and pans at 8 p.m to voice opposition um, to the military government and to the military coup. So 
that's how it started. But since then, the civil disobedience movement has basically encompassed everything that we're doing right now, whether it be street protests or being on strike. But the main purpose, I believe, in my opinion, of the civil disobedience movement is to is for civil servants to not obey the military government and basically not work until the civilian government is back. So they are stating that that they will not work under this military government because they are not their government and they will only come back to work if their government come back. And the government is the civilian government, which is the NLD party. So that's how their civil disobedience movement is um, defined as currently. But I think the civil disobedience movement can also be defined as like protest, um, people who are helping people protest, people who are donating to um, protesters, people who are uh, buying shields for uh, people, people who are on the front line. Because all of that, all of that, if you think about it, is civil disobedience. Because none of us are obeying the, what the military is telling us, and we are even sharing on social media. I would say civil disobedience. So I think the civil disobedience movement is basically. Um, everything that we're doing that voice opposition to the military. Okay, right. So a big part of the civil disobedience movement is fundraising for these civil servants who are going on strike. And you, you run one of the many online fundraisers that have materialized in the wake of the coup. So what made you decide to start raising money for the CDM as a form of protest? So like I said before, when the protests finally started after six days, of silence. I was out on the streets protesting every day and then I turned violent. So I was like, well, I can't go on the streets every day. And I do feel like as someone who is privileged in terms of like um, income and in terms of like having, being able to use more social media platforms. And well, at that time, my friend was doing a fundraiser for, I think, doctors at the moment. Um, and I thought that um, I could help her with the fundraiser. So I basically posted on Instagram how if you guys want to contribute to the fundraiser, I would truly appreciate it. And it was a very informal uh, message. It was like, hi, if you guys want to distribute, uh, if you guys want to contribute, uh, please DM me. And I didn't expect a lot of people to come supporting support me. And I think I raised around 1,000, um, 3,000? I'm not exactly sure, around like 2,000 to like 3,000 from there. So I decided that I'm going to do a proper fundraiser. So um, so I started a Instagram, a proper Instagram post stating uh, clearly the goals of the fundraiser, which is to support civil servants on strike, but uh, how a very small percentage of the money will go to victims of police brutality or... Um, medical costs for um, those who are affected by the police, bruta police brutality. So, yeah, same thing. Um, and also for, uh, clarify how the funds will be sent and which states will receive how many percent of the funds because of the population and because of how urgent mutual aid is necessary there. So that's how I started the fundraiser. And now it has become like uh, a small organization in itself. So I'm really happy with that. <laughs> right. Can you explain this small organization that has come up around your fundraiser? And also, how do you raise the funds and how do you distribute them? Um, so we decided to call it On the Ground 
well, my friend called it without really my consent, but I'm okay with it. So it's not really that much of a big deal. So how we raise the funds is I also have a few methods. Um, first, I basically post on Instagram how we're distributing, uh, we're, we're fundraising for people and how we're trying to get it to rural regions, how we're going to mainly ethnic regions. And that's why people have uh, sent funds to us because they believe that um, ethnic regions or rural areas have not received many of the um, funds or the cash assistance. Um, second thing I do is I do a fundraise bingo which, where I post on my Instagram story how like I post a bingo sheet and there's like um, $3, $3, $3, $5, $5, $5, $7, $7, $7. There's like three rows and columns and I ask people to like donate and some people will donate $3 or $6 and I would cut up. I would uh, cross off $3 or $6. So that's how, another method of how I fundraise. And also I ask assistance from uh, the Burmese diaspora from the US and the UK. Um, and we work together and I explain to them my fundraiser and I explain and that's and in that sense they raise the money for us and they send it to us and we send it to activists or people on the ground, people who are on strike, I meant. Okay. And how do you decide whom to allocate the funds to? So, um, that's quite a difficult question because we're also having that problem. Uh, because we, our fundraiser focus on ethnic regions, but usually we asked um, the activists or the group that is distributing the funds, um, the urgency of how much mutual, how much, how much cash assistance they need, and but usually what they answer is that they need urgent cash assistance. So we try to send it um, to everyone as equally as possible to Kitchen State to the Nindai State, but. Even though we are trying, that's not the case because sometimes there will be a few civil servants um, that reach out to us uh, personally, stating that they are not, they are running out of cash and they are having financial problems. So could you support us? So that way we also support them. And I've also noticed a trend with um, civil servants that janitors, truck drivers, uh, I don't know if I could call them painters, the one who paint the house, like, you know, decorators, I guess, I don't really know the English term for it, um, have received uh, less funds than doctors, nurses, and teachers, whereas doctors, nurses, and teachers have received a bit more of donations compared to those groups. So I also try to channel my funds towards them as well. Um, so that's how I usually decide. Um, also, another thing is that because we're distributing funds to activists and groups, um, I prefer sending it to activists because activists uh, tend to know that which family needs uh, financial aid more urgently than the group because the group will give everyone equally the same amount and not um, considering the fact that one family will have six children, but the other person will only be living alone and can't support themselves a bit more. So sending it to activists, it's good because they will be able to send it a bit more to families who need it more and they will be able to send a bit more. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Has there been any indication that these workers, these civil servants going on strike has had an impact on the military? Yes, I definitely think so. Um, and I judge it from the way the military has responded because they have 
been desperately. Uh, when the coup started happening, they have been desperately trying to get doctors to come back to work, and they have been forcing bank workers to go back to work. And they have stated that um, they will not uh, lose their salaries if they come back to work, which is also one sign of desperation. And secondly, they have been going after civil servants who are leaders of their respective professions, like, for example, doctors, nurses, and they are trying to get rid of them or arrest them to force other civil servants to come back to work. And regarding bank workers, they also would force them to continue working, which is also another sign of desperation in my eyes. Um, on state media, they have called CDM, Country Destroying Movement, and they have stated, this is actually ridiculous, like they have stated that doctors who are going on strike are committing genocide. Um, so my perspective is that from the way the military has responded and as we know, like a government cannot function without any of its like ministries working and none of the ministries are actually working. Um, and judging from two of these things, I do think that civil servants being on strike is working and that the military is trying to get desperate because they can't get people to come back to work or go to work. Right. So you mentioned that a lot of the bank workers have gone on strike and that all of the public banks and many of the private banks have been closed for, for months and cash withdrawals are limited at ATMs. The military has even repeatedly blocked people's internet access. So have these been obstacles to your efforts to support the striking workers? Uh, well, to start off, um, it wasn't an obstacle at first because we sent it through KPZP, which is the local form of bank payments. And there was internet access, first of all, and back when the coup started. So it was quite easy. Um, so that's how we were distributing funds. But since then, not only has internet has been blocked, but the amount of cash you're able to withdraw from an ATM is now limited. Uh, right now, it's limited to two lakhs per per day, which is, I think, around 120 to $50. I can't, I don't know the exchange rate currently, so I can't um, be exact with that. Um, so even sending money, like if I send like 10 lakhs, the activists on the ground will have to go to the ATM five days in a row to uh, cash out the money. And currently they only allow, I think one ATM only allow like 50 people to withdraw money. So banks being closed, so that's a huge problem. Another method that I use is wave money which is I go to a local store and I transfer the cash from there and the other person on the other side would be able to receive money and that's how they will receive the funds. But even that is kind of difficult now because sending funds from the Wave Money store is easy, but receiving it on the other hand is a bit more difficult because um, it's hard to cash out money. So um, that's another problem. But right now, bank transfers are still... I would say okay. I wouldn't say great. We're having difficulties. So these are a few obstacles that I have to face when fundraising. But um, another method that I've been wanting to try is that to send it through transport, where I'll just ask a car driver to like send the money, which is actually um, totally normal to do in Myanmar. So like, it's not very like um, strange because that used to be the main form of uh, money transport back in the day. So I'm thinking of doing that, but that takes usually like a day or two. Sometimes it would take like three or four days. So 
I've been meaning to try that as well. I have also seen a lot of people on social media posting photos of police, checking people's phones for pro-CDM content. Are you concerned that your fundraiser will get you arrested? For sure. I'm 100% worried, which is why I actually leave my phone when I go out. So I actually don't bring my phone at all, even if I go to like the nearest store, because um, I'm worried that they will um, find out. And once they find out, I have no idea how much pain they're going to inflict on me in jail or something like that. So <laughs> I am, yeah. So you've taken an active role in this movement. And when we spoke previously, you said that you protest three or four times a week and that your parents have been worried about you. The ongoing fear of violence and surveillance must be overwhelming. How are you and your fellow activists coping with all of this, especially being as involved as you are in these activities? Um, so to start off, all of us are really worried and social media isn't safe anymore. So regarding social media, um, people are a bit more um, aware of surveillance. So many of us have changed their Facebook names, Instagram names. I have recently took off my name off Instagram, even though my name is common and they can harass me easily, but I still took it off. And I deleted some personal photos of myself. Well, I've, I have to delete more though or archived it. So that's how I'm taking precautions. And we also started using Signal and Telegram, which is an en encrypted messaging app that the military isn't able to trace. So that's how we are, are taking precautions as well. But to be completely honest with you, Jacob, even though we are taking precautions and all, it's just quite terrifying. We, we don't know what's going to happen. And in some sense, we are taking that risk because there is no other choice. We know that we can get arrested by the post we post on social media. We know that we can get arrested by going on the protest. But even if we take precautions, like that is not confirmed that we will be safe. But recently, um, not recently, it's been like a few, a month or two now. Um, frontline workers have become a thing where people who are the bravest of us are in the front line of the protest. And if the police soldiers were to shoot or throw tear gas or even throw grenades they are the fronts protecting us so i'm really and eternally grateful to them and in all of their bravery right many listeners who are listening to you describe the horrifying situation on the ground might want to support the democracy movement in myanmar but they also might feel uncomfortable sending money to a stranger who's not affiliated with any official organization what would you say to them well, to start off, a lot of um, official organizations have actually been uh, taken by the government, so they are not able to fundraise money. So that's a problem. And second of all, um, one thing about organizing a personal, well, a personal fundraiser for the community is that I don't take any money in logistics, which means that any money that is spent on logistics will be uh, taken by me. And third of all, this is a bit strange, but I always ask a few photos from uh, when I send out money to the communities. I'm like, can you take a photo when you send, give the donation to basically verify that we have sent the funds to these communities and that I'm able to send it back to my donors to prove that we are not uh, a fraud, <laughs> to be honest. Um, yeah, but I think that one thing about our uh, fundraisers that we don't spend any money on logistics and unlike 
GoFundMe fundraiser or um, I don't know about GoFundMe, but actually Facebook. Facebook takes a small percentage of the funds. Um, we don't take any money from the funds and all of the funds that we have, we send it back to the communities. Yeah, so that's one thing that um, I can confirm with our fundraiser. <laughs> that's great. And can you explain exactly how someone outside Myanmar can donate to your fundraiser? So we have a few um, form of um, payments. Um, we take by PayPal. Um, if you're American, we take it by Sal as well. Um, and we do bank transfers. So that's how the three methods that we are uh, using for um, safety purpose, um, because we are in Myanmar and we are, both of us are in Myanmar and it's not safe for us to reveal our bank details. We prefer if you directly message us for uh Okay, and before we go, do you have a final message for those listening in? I don't know if there, there's going to be a lot of foreigners listening, but if you are, please, please have faith in the fact that the revolution, we are going to win the revolution. I know that a lot of academics and a lot of political commenters think that, many of them think that we're not going to win, but do not ask, underestimate the will of our people. Like COVID is happening. They are murdering us in like broad daylight and we're taking that risk. So that shows the amount of commitment that we have and the amount of fear that we have for living under for living under this military dictatorship. So please support us any way you can, whether it be financial or emotional. Um, even spreading awareness on social media is something that I would really appreciate. So I would be glad if you could support our movement. Okay, that's all we have today. Thank you, Hayne, for sharing your thoughts and speaking to us. For more information on what's happening in Myanmar and the civil disobedience movement, you can read the article on newnarrative.com. We'll link the piece in our description. Thank you for having me, Jacob. I really enjoy um, being on this podcast, and this is something new for me as well. Our thanks to Hayne for joining us on this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches. Next week, be sure to tune in to New Narrative's Political Agenda, our podcast series on current affairs in Singapore. This is Jacob wishing all our listeners a great week ahead.